You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I am your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at this.labs. Today, we're very excited to sit down with Gant Laborde and talk about React Native, conference organizing, AI, and honestly, We'll, we'll figure out the rest as we get there. Anyways, Gant <laughs> is a CIO at Infinite Red, the author of Learning TensorFlow.js, Powerful Machine Learning in JavaScript. He's an organizer with Chain React, a Google GDE, a Microsoft MVP, honestly, a whole lot more. Gant, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Yeah, we're so excited to have you here. Honestly, there are so many topics and not nearly yeah. enough time, so we will jump right in. <laughs> I think, you know, it's interesting that uh, I think just yesterday you tweeted that it had been a remembrance about a mm -hmm. talk you gave four years ago at Amazon oh, and yeah. reflecting on the journey that you've been on yeah. um, building a React Native uh, consultancy. And I, I thought to start there because, mm -hmm. you know, I've worked in consultancies for a long time. When I came back to web consultancies, I, you know, I, I felt like mobile apps were all the rage. It's the yeah. 2015, 2016, everyone thought the future is all apps. And so I worked at a place that did a lot of Cordova development uh -huh. um, yeah. as, as a forerunner of this. And so I, I feel like, I don't know if it's mixed or if it's just the circles I'm running in, but can you talk about your decision to kind of focus on React Native and the promise and, and why you're still excited about it today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, what's really funny is uh, mobile development when it first, kind of came out was just it was a brand new power you know at, now you've got you've got like the web on your phone as well like you feel very very connected apps are like refined and gamified and you know like you expect them all to like connect to every single feature but at the beginning we just knew all that stuff was possible but nobody was doing it so there's all this greenfield and then i jumped into mobile development and uh, I could say that that was a big pain in the beep sound right there. <laughs> so what happens is originally when you're doing mobile development, you're doing it native. Originally, everything was done in iOS. You had to be, you know, you just supported iPhone. And if someone had a lot of money, you'd go do their Android app. And sure enough, like we, I was working as a consultant with uh, Infinite Red before this was infinite red llc this is before the merger with ClearSight, and we were really great at building apps but people were asking more and more we want this app to be rewritten all over again <laughs> and we were looking at the options out there you know i did play around with phone gap i think i wrote an article that really peeved a few people when that was happening uh <laughs> i was trying to find a solution so what i did was i did um I started in Ruby Motion because Ruby was cool. I, I mean, to this day, if you asked me, yeah, what's your favorite programming language? It's Ruby. It it still has my heart. I used to go to RubyConf. Uh, you know, I had you know people had pictures of their dogs on the back of their phone. I like I was like I had me and Matt's. I was like ah, Ruby's the best. Ruby's gonna live forever. <laughs> uh, but no, it's like your senior summer. Done. It never ends, right? That's right. A... Yeah. Yeah. So. We, we were using Ruby Motion, which allowed us to go ahead and build 
uh, native iOS apps in Ruby, and then it would compile down. And you still had to learn all the intricacies of the phone, but this was great. So uh, Todd and Jamin came up with this idea of Red Potion, which was this framework around building iOS apps. And then they started to extrapolate up this layer of, of tooling that would work as well because Ruby Motion started to support Android. So we made Blue Potion. And the idea was like, how close can we get the API to sort of be? We started to make all these cool things. We spoke in France. It was like this big, big, big deal. And then Ruby Motion started to just die. <laughs> and I loved it so much. I loved Ruby so much. But uh, at the same time, uh, they announced React Native. And here's the idea, like, how about you don't care what platform you're on? And that was sort of like what we were building in independently, you know, on top of a framework that was backed by like a four-person company versus being backed by then Facebook, now Meta. So we're like, okay, well, this is a much larger company building exactly what it is we want to do. So that way we can have some kind of shareable architecture across iOS and Android. And I was one of the few landing party people at our company who went down there and was like, how easy is this? And built some like Hello World apps where I'm updating an iOS and Android with the same exact code base. And then we built it for two clients. One of them, actually, I can never tell what clients were allowed to say and not say. So we built one for a pizza company. And then we built one for a, actually, I'm pretty sure I could say theirs is Track Ops, which was like a secret agency, which allows you to uh, track your time when you're doing spy stuff or I don't know. It's, I'm terrible at explaining it, but it's really a simple app. And so built that and we wound up getting like 85% code reuse between iOS and Android, which if you consider where we were, we were building two frameworks. <laughs> In order to share as, you know, maybe 50% of our code was our goal between two of those. So, yeah, from there, it was like, okay, <laughs> we could go ahead and get, you know, we can get in on this. Uh, fast forward just a little bit. We start pushing it towards 90%, 95% code reuse. More of our team gets trained into React Native. Next thing I know, you know, essentially we're on the ground floor. Right as they announced Android, we got in there hot in like 2015. And I'm speaking at conferences around the world about React Native and, you know, staring longingly out the window at Ruby as it drives away. <laughs> I think, you know, at the beginning, I don't know if people fully appreciated the beauty of React Native because... I, again, at the time, libraries like Cordova, which still exists, and, and mm -hmm. Ionic to an extent as well, were, yeah. were yeah. not pushing a different paradigm necessarily, but had a different paradigm. This idea of uh, write once, run anywhere. That was kind yeah. of the continued mantra. And it was really powerful, but it came with limitations. And I think as I and many other developers that did this realized, that is a great ideal, but it's difficult in practice. Throughout yeah. your code, you're always going to end up with those, if iOS do this, if Android do this. And mm -hmm. that just was inevitable. And you tried to keep that contained in services and hide it and abstract it, of course, but yes. it existed. And I, I liked that React Native changed it to this idea of learn once, 
right everywhere yeah. as a way to kind of, you know, they were on the, like, so the forefront of running JavaScript everywhere. And the idea yeah. that you do have the ability to reuse code, as you mentioned, but at the same time, if you needed to, you can start to break apart the differences between the platforms and customize as deeply as you want. Yeah. It's a really fun tool to write in for anybody that's never yeah. tried it. It actually is, you're more powerful more quickly than you realize, even if you've never done a mobile app before. <laughs> that is 100% true. And your ability to respect the platforms was there at day one in React Native. You know, changing the extension of saying, you know, uh, iOS and, and, and Android and even Windows. And what's funny is at the time, an iOS app had to feel like an iOS app and an Android app had to feel like an Android app. Um, but now there are libraries that even abstract that away where it'll make it feel like that dependent upon where the code is running. And kudos to React Native for sort of giving you a, an infrastructure to, to respect each platform, which is why I think React Native goes wide. And actually, you know, you can run it for Apple TV, you can run it, you know, Windows apps are using it. And so now you have the opportunity to uh, work together. But then you could say, when you're on this platform, do this, because this will be important. Like for Apple TV, there's no such thing as, um, you know, touching something without, you know, like at first having focus. There's this whole idea of focus on Apple TV. And you can put that in there and then still have the components work the way they should. But there's no idea for focus on a phone, because what do you, you're like, just stare at it really hard. <laughs> There's just these different sort of UI elements that are significantly respected in React Native that made it an outlier uh, for putting a lot of time and energy into code reusability and, and being able to uh, make, I would even say, the platforms accessible but then the projects and the libraries on top of that abstracted so that they could be uh, they could be different, but everybody understands how they're different. Like, of course, that's going to work different on Apple TV. And that's so nice because you when you take that, you does what a library always needs to do. It takes it out of your brain and takes the weight off. And then you just say, like, OK, now my team can go do this, you know, and I don't have to sit down and instruct them for an hour and a half on user elements and you don't have uh, the design team fighting with the development team, which is honestly a lot of 2015 to 2018 at most companies. Uh, now they work together and, and to a certain degree, they even like design and workflow directly into each other, which is fantastic. I, I am excited to see where it goes to, because on this podcast, we've talked to people that are building, for example, the UIs that are going to go that that go into vehicles. Mm -hmm. And what that whole platform looks like, you know, somebody on our staff in our in our Slack was just talking about their frustrations trying to build a, a new Roku app uh, to deal with the limitations of another one they have. I mean, we have Alexa devices with screens. We got wearables now. I mean, the premise and the promise of a platform uh, and, a, and a library like React, and the way that they've sort of made the renderer so flexible that you can build a React Native, that this idea that you know, you can learn a technology and hopefully over time you can build desktop apps, TV apps, yeah. Yeah. you know, car apps. <laughs> uh, you know, that was the promise that really excited me about development in that 2015, 2016 timeframe. And I don't think it's gone away, but I, I feel like mobile first 
lost a little bit of its momentum or I don't know if people have pivoted away or if it's just or maybe we're just so used to it now it doesn't stick out as much I don't know what you think but like oh th this technology yeah, feels like it should be the only thing people are talking about and yeah. sometimes it, it isn't I, I agree a thousand percent and and to a certain degree uh this is this is the backlash of having a large company uh back something um they can't innovate like a small company company can it's very important that they uh, get internal adoption. And one of the things that we've seen is that React Native was a toy project at first. It iterated fast, it proved a concept, it did something in not the most effective way. It said yes to a lot of things in 2015 through 2017. Just sure, sure, bring it into React Native. Lots of acceptance, you know, please say yes. Then, um, if you start to take a look from there, the project gets proven and then it turn it loses a bit of its cool vibe and takes a little bit of a cool down. And then uh, it starts to get, once it loses that though, it starts to get adopted by larger companies. Amazon starts using it. Um, you know, Microsoft starts using it. It starts to be more stable. And then you start to see even enough, what's funny is it took a while for it to get adopted inside of Facebook. You know, it had to prove itself there. So Facebook apps weren't originally in React Native. It wasn't like an overnight success for them, and they just move everything right away. But now you start to see them move it over there. And as they move it over there, stability becomes really important. And that slows down innovation. Um, I don't think it kills it. It doesn't stop it from going to where we want it to go. It just means that 90% of the time that used to be on innovation is now on um, the engine. You know, it's now... Uh, it, the inspiration part of it has been slowed down and the perspiration has been moved specifically towards stability, adoption, and, and making sure these things uh, work well for the next decade, you know, because nobody wants to get the whole company on a product just to go ahead and get the whole company on their next idea. <laughs> now, one of the big things that I, I honestly had missed uh, <laughs> until I was researching for this podcast is that mm -hmm. React Native announced or released, I'm not even sure the state of it, a new architectural model yeah. um, and I think it made a lot of waves uh, because the promise of it is immediate when you read about it but then the fear immediately sneaks thereafter when you yeah. say well, what does this mean for me and my yeah. existing application so I know your team is putting together an extensive blog post to kind of uh, maybe make people feel a little better or scare them I'm not sure what it's going to say <laughs> uh, but do you want to give people a little bit of uh, I guess a grounding as to what this is going to mean for them if they maybe have an existing app or if they haven't even started learning it? Well, I think that what's really interesting here is that people for a long time have heard and talked about the React Native bridge. You know, the, this is a bad thing. And it, this reminds me a little bit of, I'm, now I'm going to sound, look, I'm going to show the gray in my beard. This reminds me back of the, you know, global interpreter lock back in Ruby. As you've got this core process, this core thing that's actually bad for the product that's really hard to get rid of and then really hard to get everybody into a new thing and so i want to say is that even if we get rid of uh, the bridge and the new architecture and it is a net neutral like it's not insanely fast now it doesn't do you know a whole bunch of new stuff if you have the same modules and everybody understands how these things work and it is able to do the code compilation and you're you're doing the lazy loading from javascript you've solved all these other problems even if 
everything ends up exactly net neutral, that's a big, big, big step that doesn't look like it because everybody wants to see, okay, get rid of the bridge and I want all of my existing apps to run thousands of times faster and be more amazing than they ever were. And then I just want us to have a giant party and champagne to be handed out to everyone. <laughs> and that'll never happen. The actual most amazing part here, in my opinion, is that they've identified this. They've started to make the moves towards it. And uh, it is, you know, right now, um, very experimental. So if you go to, you're used to building native modules, which in the original architecture was so simple, <laughs> so simple. And there might be some people out here when they hear the word turbo module, they, they start to cringe up a bit because this has been announced for a while and it's being iterated on, it's being adjusted, it's being like figured out. And as they're figuring these things out, this is where uh, you're seeing a lot of change. And people are saying like, well, I had, you know, I only loaded three modules before. So eager loading them wasn't a problem for me. Like startup time wasn't a problem for me. I got a weekend project. Come on, React Native. But um, where it is now, this is this is a professional product. And people who have the skills to do React Native are very important professionals building this for very large companies. And, you know, when we first started React Native, we were doing apps that were hypothetical slash looking at a user base of a couple thousand. Um, some of the companies we're working for now have millions and millions of users and they're moving to React Native now. They can't have huge startup costs. They can't have giant memory. They can't have all these problems. The bloat is what they're actually trying to get away from when they're coming to React Native and React Native has to be a space where that can happen. So what I say is, uh, yeah, it, it, it is a little bit scary. <laughs> and I have read the docs and then read the docs a week later and been like, what is this? But that's, that's what this progress needed. That's what it needs, absolutely. Because the other option is that I wave at this just like I waved at Ruby back in 2014. It had such a fascinating trade-off, right? I mean, this idea of... Um... You said it before, right? This idea of when something is in the innovation space and the scrappy space versus the stability space. I mean, yeah. developers in the last few years have really um, in, endured a lot. And I think continue to with React, we had the migration to hooks. We had the continued wait for, I mean, no pun intended, for suspense. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Vue went to Vue 3, Angular mm -hmm. had Ivy. I think we've had major tectonic shifts um, mm -hmm. in some of the major frameworks that require migrations. And oh, yeah. I don't think developers are tired of it. I think this kind of thing has always existed, but I think they're wary whenever they start hearing, you know, new keyword, new capitalized keywords showing up in the documentation. Uh, I think all developers are just start from a skeptical because they're like, how much they work do. is this going to be for me? But it, but it has benefits. So it's a oh, balance, yeah. right? You, you can't yeah. languish, but you, you do have to be considerate of the people who might have to have now a whole platform shift if that's necessary i'm not saying that is here necessarily but absolutely if anybody's seen the adventure of angular um when angular first came out i did it for six months and i still didn't understand it so <laughs> and like the the just the what i've seen since then it's just so beautiful to watch the adoption of of so many new principles typescript and such and just to finally sort of see uh you know if someone's coming in fresh they don't have to suffer the way i did 
And I think developers are cool that way. We don't have that thing as like, it really hurt for me. It really has to hurt for you. Um, they really want to make sure that uh, any type of development environment, any kind of like, even our conferences, it's about being welcoming. It's about being friendly. It's about being a, a place where we help figure things out together. And I've only experienced this in the developer community. Uh, any other place I've worked, like, you're the new guy. Time to suffer. Yeah. <laughs> uh... So the other the other interesting part about you know this is that you uh, host or help host a conference yes. of React yes. Native uh, called yes. Chain React and yes. you know I guess the first obvious question is what were you thinking and the second <laughs> obvious question is uh, you know tell us a little bit about it yeah well you know um, the the entire company was being pulled into React Native and that was just in 2015 2016 in 2017. We, we said, look, we're obviously doing this professionally. We've got contacts now with, with lots of different companies. Let's go ahead and there needs to be a React Native conference where these ideas are shared. And this is one of those things that comes about from Meta uh, slash Facebook then being in charge of this. One of the things that they had was this deep, deep, deep internal set of information and then a strong developer community on the outside was zero exchange. And it's just obviously not good for a company. It's honestly not how anybody likes to run their company. You know, we like to have information exchange. We like open source, you know, just like this dot. Everybody is together and it's a big, it's a big family. It's a big team. And so I said, there needs to be a US React Native conference. I mean, well, actually there was no React Native conferences at all. <laughs> so we said, there needs to be a React Native conference. So we went ahead and looked into it in Portland. We found this beautiful venue of this giant stadium. And it's a single stage because, you know, it's not multi-track. There's not, oh, I'm going to go to the JavaScript. This is all React Native. So you get this giant auditorium. It looks gorgeous right in the heart of Portland, Pearl District, with a uh, walk across the street and try, like, the best foods and everything like that. So it's like, at the very least, if this doesn't do well, Infinite Red will be there and we will enjoy ourselves and we'll have speakers from around the world. <laughs> and in 2017, we threw the first uh, React Native conference, Chain React, and people came in and it was a huge success. It was just wonderful. So it was one of those things where everybody's like, yes, someone's doing this. Thank you. So Chain React Conf started in 2017. We did it again in 2018. We did it again in 2019. And then something happened in 2020. I don't know if anybody knows about that. I don't know. <laughs> I but, can't uh, remember. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember anything from 2020. <laughs> so um, one of, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. And what we do is we have uh, speakers from everywhere. Same venue that we have. Um, Portland's completely different now. So I went there to check everything out. It has got all kinds of new energy, new restaurants, and still, of course, some of the classics like the shoots are still there. And so uh, we'll be having Chain React again in May of 2023. And, you know, it's a weird thing. It's like, hey, do you want to throw a conference? Sure. And then we did. <laughs> Which shouldn't be that easy, but is that hard. So 
it's a lot of fun. It's definitely a lot of work, but in, in a way, if we didn't have this, um, well, then there would be no US React Native centric, just only React Native conference. And I think without that, we wouldn't be able to get the information. We had in 2019, Facebook announced Hermes, you know, which is everywhere now. They announced that at our conference. So they don't have their own conference That's to announce exciting. things too much, except for at React, but you know, React Conf hasn't happened in a while either. So I just think it's one of those things where, um, you know, you need to have that community, you kind of need that part. And it's one of our favorite events of the year. I, uh, you know, I, I love what I love about conferences and conference organizing is that mm -hmm. it's one of those things that if you've never um, seen it or done it, you assume that it must be impossible to get into. You must need a license. You must need to be authorized. Um, yeah. But what's funny about it is that you just need to be naive enough to think you can do it yep. and have a near limitless ability to just do a lot of work. And, and, and then the you can host piece, your own conference. <laughs> the, the, there's a third piece of that that's really critical. Otherwise, you only ever host a conference once. It is you have to be the naive every year. <laughs> you have to have limitless uh, you know, energy to put into it. And the third thing is you have to make sure the focus is not for yourself. Because yeah. I have to say there's been some conferences this past year that have been maybe had tens of 20s of blog posts written about how much they've failed and what they promised and what they did. Uh, you have to make sure that you're you're focusing and you're willing to lose money on on the fact that your value is for the people who are going and the speakers who are going. Like, if you do that and you're okay with that, then you can throw a conference. If you're trying to do it for your own benefit, ooh, wrong Developers business. Developers sniff that out from a mile away. Yeah, wrong business, yeah. don't do it. <laughs> No, it's not a get rich quick scheme by any stretch it is of the imagination. It is it is a labor of passion, but but I mean like by that by that means it allows us to connect. So like for instance, Rob, if you want to go to Chain React, just just tell me, you know, and we'll get you a uh uh you do your podcast from there and now you're a media pass. And then absolutely, man. There you go. We'll have you there and you could do yeah. a podcast from there and it'd be fun. I, I I know you've got a lot of technologies to talk about, but that would be fun. It'd be great. Oh, we and then I get stuff. to see you in person. Oh, I mean, it would be, it would be a pleasure. Well, yeah. I've, you know, and it's funny part is I've, I've been to the large multi-track conferences that you're talking about. Yes, um, yeah. And I, I like them for what they are. I love the feeling, the electric feeling of thousands of developers. Yeah. Sometimes you forget how big our community is at times. That's fun to feel. But I've been at the couple hundred person yes. intimate one room conferences where you grab a seat and all your stuff, and it becomes like a a yeah. room by the end. It's not it's uh, not refilled yeah. every hour. It's like it be, it has its own personality by the end. Everybody has their spots and things, and you get to really meet people. And it, it's a fun style of conference. This the single uh, it, the single track one for sure. It feels amazing. It, the, it it you know React Rally does it really well. I'd say that we do it really well, and and it's really just. Um, being focused, you know, it, there's so many distractions at the big ones. So the ones with thousands of people, I'll catch maybe two talks and I'll hallway track, you know, mm -hmm. most of the time. For the single track conferences, I really get a lot of information. You know, there, there's probably been a handful that I've been to and they've definitely been my favorites. Yeah, and I wonder why that is. I mean, I guess to some extent it's because the 
you're, you're not just in transit so much in the hallway right. track. So you don't, you don't feel like you have to sacrifice attendance. Like everyone kind of, when the talk's over, everyone is immediately in that mode together. Of yeah. Talking and then you go to lunch and you come back and it's really you know, nice. That's some of the feel of it. It's because well, I, I agree with you. The multi-track is generally, you know, if you're lucky, you're at the center of what the multi-tracks are, you know, and are interested in. You could go through to a 3D JS, you know, um, JS style talk, and then they're using some framework in their talk that's just not the framework that you know, and now you've got like a wall or a barrier. A single tra track, everybody knows what the talks are. It's actually why we're very specific, you know, when you apply a CFB, it better be about React Native. You know, I don't want a JavaScript talk. I don't want React, you know, but but it could apply to React Native. It's very, very specific. And what that does is that allows your brain to sort of stay in one state. No context shifting. You, act, you actually get in the zone with, you know, the people around you, uh, the experience, and as well as the information that's coming out. Well, I know we haven't really talked about dates here, but while we're on the topic, uh, I'm pretty sure we don't know exactly when people will be listening to this, but uh, yeah. assuming they hear it before the conference occurs, which it'll be released before then, can you yeah. let them know when it is and where? Yes. You've talked a little bit about where, but yeah. just so that people, if they're interested, they can look at it. Yeah, please look at chainreactconf.com. May 17th is workshops. If you've got a team of people that need to get into React Native or they're in React Native, but they want to get into React Native testing, or they, they've been in React Native for a while and they want to go ahead and learn about the new architecture before <laughs> what, what's changed and what's good. Um, the workshops are on May 17th, but on May 18th and 19th, it is the single track in the, um, in the auditorium, in the Armory in Portland, which is a beautiful, beautiful theater space. Um, and it's two days, single track conference, sitting there checking it out it's it's wonderful and we have a wonderful after party by the way at expensify they're our platinum sponsor their office they bought a bank <laughs> and they've they're, they're gonna have a party at that bank and it sounds crazy but the pictures are outstanding and i went and took a look at it last week it is a really cool space um so it's it's a great place for people who are looking to hire people who are looking to learn and people who are looking to get hired. Wonderful. I can't think of a brilliant segue to AI, but let's talk about oh, AI for a little bit. No problem, Rob. Just go ask ChatGPT for. I a was going to say I I just didn't have enough time. <laughs> Write me a, a segue between Chain React pitch and AI. Um, <laughs> I wish I had it up, but yeah. Uh, oh, they, no. they, everybody today needs to have a tab open with ChatGPT to in improve their workspace actually i saw a video today where you could actually tell siri how to use your api key to go ask chat gpt i think that's really i mean i'm not joking that's that's very important if you're not doing that every day like you're you've got to get that it's part of my workflow it's really great count me as one of the enlightened recently um yeah. you know i at work, I had the opportunity, we had to write up a bunch of marketing uh, script and it needed mm -hmm. a technical writing. And and so for mm -hmm. anybody that struggles with this, uh, especially any of the people with ADHD out there, sometimes it's just nothing's harder than sitting in front of a blank sheet of paper and getting going. And mm -hmm. uh, so uh, uh, Tracy, you know, our CEO, handed out some some starters 
from nice. generated from chat GPT. And of course we all, awesome. we all wailed and gnashed our teeth and said, no, of course this is going to be terrible. We're going to have to rewrite all of it. <laughs> and I mean, darn if it wasn't very close yeah. and realistically just needed to be honed in and refined uh, yeah. to what it needed to be. And from there I was completely sold. I mean, this stuff is potent and yeah. I, I mean, beyond just praising the strength of it, I guess my first question for you to kind of frame the start of this is yeah. which seems more true. I think both are true, but which seems more true is AI a skill that every developer is going to need to learn or is AI yes. just a tool that every developer should be using? Cause I yes. don't think it's a question of whether chat GPT is useful yeah. and people should be using it every day, but should it stop there or, or really should people be moving beyond it? Because that's really just the tip of the promise iceberg of this and how people could be using it every day. Look, I have been a huge fan of AI since 20, late 2016, 2017. It's been, you know, uh, it's been one of those things where I was like, that, that's not possible. That, nope. And I had my that's not possible moment uh, building a React Native app and seeing a React Native app released um, and saying, no, you, you can't you can't take a picture of that and have it do that. That doesn't happen. And when I had that moment, I was like, this is this is going to change everything. And so first of all, your, your first question there is uh, about like developers knowing uh, AI, knowing the concepts, knowing like what, what kind of things are coming. And yeah, if you take a look at sort of, we used to make fun of colleges for training people for jobs that won't exist in 10 years, you know? And we're like, aha, you, you've got to adapt. And it's not that there won't be jobs. It's that the jobs will be different. There was no such thing as a React Native developer when I went, to many of my jobs. And there sure wasn't even mobile development when I went to college. Like it, it was Windows phone. <laughs> it was not, it was not real. Like it was, it was not something you could do. And you know, if you got hello world on your phone, then you were, you're a wizard. So what happens is you're all looking down the barrel of a future of jobs that don't have titles or being known yet. There'll be things like AI artist, not digital artists. Digital artists were laughed at by actual artists. Art, actual artists were laughed at by oil painters. Like this is what's going to continue to happen. There will be digital artists where a person knows exactly how to prompt, grab, and receive appropriate information to compose images based off of previous context, previous people, and then putting them in their spots. Uh, that'll have probably multiple tiers of AI artists. There will be prompt engineers, people who, um, like Tracy, will say, here's, an, here's a moment and here's how I get the results necessary in order to get the AI to be ready to, to give us the information that we're going to need. You're going to need that model with that API with uh, this prompt. It's going to kind of go there and that's going to get you what you need. These things don't exist yet because nobody could ever put on a resume to hire for it. We're at the beginning of React Native where people are like, that's so cool. But instead of people saying, oh, I'm doing React Native. And then now they say like, oh, I'm learning Rust. The next thing they're going to say is like, hey, I automated that entire process in one day by going ahead and using this service tied with this one. 
And that's why I think that the first part of it, yes, you need to learn as much as you can because that's what our field does. And that's what kind of you like as a developer. Like if you got in development for the money, sorry, you know, you're going to burn out. You got into it because you have this kind of mindset. You're a little bit of a nerd. You enjoy the story, you enjoy the adventure, you enjoy the intricacies that aren't just printed out for you on every single wall all the time. Then this is where you jump in. This is where you start to dig your hands in. And you might feel behind, but you're not. You In one day, you can frog leap. It's just not doing that process, not working those muscles is the thing that will get you behind. The second thing you said, I'm so sorry, I've, I feel like I'm monologuing. No, you're <laughs> the good. The second thing you said is about tooling. Yes, yes, this goes, th that's the other side of the coin. If you're not having Copilot help you write your code, if you're not having ChatGPT up helping you sort of structure a message or from a friend and figure things out and finding where the limitations are, then um, you're not, at the forefront of what you could be doing there. And those work together. So it's the same sort of mentality that would put you into, I'm a developer and I'm using the tools as much as possible. And then also I'm a developer and I'm learning what the next job's going to be for people and for me and who I'm, you know, if somebody is working as a developer today, they might be hiring developers tomorrow. And you need to know those things in order to hire those people. So it's job security to get jump in on that as well. I mean, I think it's everybody you're right has been focusing on how on the the threat of AI. And and by that I mean like it will replace us. We've been and programmed I, I do, to feel that way, yeah. Right. And and I guess that's a natural reaction oftentimes when you have a status quo that you're familiar with and it and yeah. it's disrupted. So I mean, again, no disrespect to anybody that has those feelings. I think we each have those feelings at moments. Well, and, and, and historically, by the way, every movie, every TV show that needed a foreign entity for everybody to hate has chosen like AI to be evil, especially before it existed, because it was great. You know, it couldn't defend itself. No one got offended. Um, it was always a great go to bad guy. And we grew up watching every movie, reading every book where we did that. So to some people, there is a lasting concern of of stories throughout their entire life where this is terrible for us. Yeah, and as long as we don't hook the AI up to the paperclip machine, I'm okay with it. But uh, that's when Clippy comes out, and be careful. <laughs> yeah, it's the dark side of Clippy in the future. But <laughs> dark side um, of Clippy. So, you know, uh, I think what what's been inspiring to me has been, yeah, you get ChatGPT, and you're like, wow people are mm -hmm. still just scratching the surface of what that can do. I think stable diffusion yes. is the same way. At first it was just, ha ha, look what I made it do. Now yeah. I'm watching somebody rapidly prototype new video games by generating art assets using it, which is business typically a big stumbling block for amateur game developers. And, yeah. uh, you know, GitHub Copilot is amazing, but then you see what uh, Amelia Wattenberger and her team at GitHub Next are doing with the code mm -hmm. brushes and suddenly yes. the possibilities are exploding. So. One of the things that I know you spend a lot of time on is this idea of thinking in AI and mm -hmm. seeing problems that can be solved by it. And I'll be honest, we as a team were asked, hey, can you give us five ideas on something we could build with AI? And you get some smart people together to sit down in front of a blank sheet of paper and sometimes suddenly 
you can't think of anything <laughs> despite the fact that we are shown every day how every yeah. possible part of our lives could be improved so how do you begin to teach someone to think to yeah. see where are the nails that the hammer of ai is useful for like what is That's that mental enough. shift that people need to make well this will happen naturally at some point and it and all you need to do is think that you're going to get that first because building apps for years uh you know when uber came along next thing i heard was oh i have an idea it's uber for blah oh this is uber for this okay well i is great this is medicare but uber style and you're just like all right, I get it. <laughs> and so what ends up happening is, is you kind of like take these ideas. ChatGPT is a pipeline. It's an, it's an ensemble of several different models, okay? It's got a lot of different pieces that they put together to make a single product. And that's why it's hard to see just a little bit of like what products come off of this. Now, there are product ideas that come off of it, but then you think, oh, anybody can do that just as easily as I just did. I don't want to invest a lot of time and energy because that's going to disappear. If you can just get right under that surface and take a look at the models, take a look at what the AI actually got in and put out, then you can see that they constructed it a certain way. But what if you were to do this? Or what if you would take that out and then you would take something from over here, you took this model and then took it and put it right here. And so if I had a model that I had created and models basically for developers, it's basically a function that does this AI stuff. If I have a one that can say, all right, I can identify any kind of plant, you know, that by itself, rewind two years ago, is just an app idea by itself. You know, like take a picture of a plant. It's like, I know exactly what plant that is. It's poisonous. It's not poisonous. Eat it. Don't eat it. Start farming. And then you could take that one model and you can start saying, okay, now I've got a bunch of ideas home farming the app you know like can i is this plan okay it's sick what do i need to do things like that and you can kind of help people and you basically you've got this educated tutor based off of tons and tons of data that's really good at identifying a few small things and this is narrow ai chat gpt reflects and scares a lot of us because it looks a lot like general ai but go back and look at all the narrow pieces that are making that happen and one piece, just one piece, like I said, like the, the plant thing, I can create 15 new businesses based off of just that. Glue that with one other thing. And now you've got exponential amount of uh, business ideas. And the trick is, if you can just get a little bit below the surface, kind of understand what models are out there, what models are coming out, um, how they're glued together, and how they're actually kind of working together, which ones you can have without an API, which ones you can run on a phone without ever needing an internet connection, or which ones you have to glue together. Like there's one service from Amazon, I tie it with this one Azure service from Microsoft and I do this all this stuff. Then what happens is there's too many ideas to do. <laughs> Your meeting stops looking like a blank page and starts looking at a priority whiteboard of saying, Let's see which of these ideas are going to actually make money. Let's see who's going to come to us with this one or that one. And it starts to happen really, really fast. You will have a document somewhere with way more ideas than you will ever have time to make. And it starts becoming a priority problem.
Absolutely. There's something, there was a fascinating thread on Twitter that I saw, which was mm -hmm. something to the effect of historical selfies generated using AI. And it was like Neanderthals, the ancient Egyptians, uh, Vikings, <laughs> Romans. And if you look at it from a distance, you're like, this is the most powerful thing I've ever seen. But when you <laughs> look into it very closely, you start to see, oh, look at that Roman soldier has two heads in his helmet. Like, wait, they did, they all have lens crafters in ancient Rome. Like, you know, it's, you start to notice these things. What I'm curious about in your opinion is, are these um wrinkles and flaws in ai that will be ironed out in time or is this the substrate where humans will never be out of the equation entirely because these things that come out of the ai do need to be maybe brushed airbrushed a little bit to to make them fully correct and we'll have to learn to not trust it so much but to accept it critically but not not from a position of doubt but just from a position of yeah okay great like this is a raw product I will refine it. Is that where it'll be? Or, or will this eventually iron out? And it'll come out you know, cleanly in the future. Two parts of that question. One is that I'll say that the safest job that you'll ever have, if the robots ever take care of every whim that we ever need, and you want to live a better life, being the robot maintenance person, the person who knows how to fix them, you're the last job that could go. Or, you know, I, I guess, and unless, of course, there's, uh, right. <laughs> you know, it, it, that's arguable, of course. But but the trick is that um, if anybody is really kind of afraid of that, learn all this knowledge about this is your forever knowledge. So first, you're saying, like, will people ever be factored out of this? I don't think so. We'll be refined further. But those blips that you're seeing, I think, are what you really are kind of seeing is people's first attempts at taking things like stable diffusion and turning it into a business right away. And they like say, like, okay, I have stable diffusion. What if I fed it 30 images of your face <laughs> and five images of, you know, Egypt? You know, like, what will it get then? And it, how, how am I going to do a hyper network that's right on top of this? And like, holy you know, I've, I'm the first person who figured out how to get my face into AI generated stuff. I've got a business, you know, and then it's got all these mistakes uh, because they just got it to work for the first time. And then they're taken off. You know, they're, they're like, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to beat everybody to market. Right. And then just like a lot of the products that we used to see sometimes for there's an app for that. It was just cool that there was an app for that. Now, if you want to build an app, it has to be the best someone can come along and do it better than you and if somebody does it better than you your app never sees the light of day even if you were first to market and so what we're kind of seeing is the same thing in ai there's an option there's a lot of potential in being first but obviously these things will get ironed out and people will like for instance you'll see a lot with ai the eyes are wrong for faces that are generated, right? Hands. So everybody always rags on oh, the hands. AI right. just can't do hands. Right. <laughs> and and one of the things that comes out of this is that uh, for, for eyes, you have models that come back over in a pipeline and say, like, now I'm going to run this through a, you know, um, I'm going to increase the size of the image and fix the eyes. And those things didn't exist, like, a month ago. <laughs> Somebody went and ran to market while somebody else said, I'm going to go ahead and refine. And then I'm going to have this to sell this. There's so much opportunity. 
I think I want to end with a little bit of philosophy, I guess. And mm -hmm. wh what I mean by that is a couple things occur to me. One is that every year we do the state of JavaScript as a community, and we are re-reminded that large swaths of everybody in the world is just not well-versed in different forms of bias, polling bias, oh, or, yeah. and, and how Very they true. might manifest. Um, yeah. Obviously, these AIs are so potent, they give the uh, view that they are, as you said, general, that they are somehow known, they know all the truth of the world, and yeah. what we are getting is objective. Um, yeah, it's not. I think the other aspect of this is price. Uh, it was recently announced that ChatGPT might move to something even is, is I, I've heard $42 a month. I don't know if that's old news or if that was a rumor. And it occurs to me that these tools are so potent that they could become a, an additional vector of, of imbalance and, and sort of injustice in the world if it was available only to businesses uh, and maybe not yeah. to, 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 to you know, middle-class or working families. So I guess my question is, it's probably already too late. And I'm glad that there are people out there working on AI ethics and AI, yeah. you know, social justice movements. But like, what do we need to start doing as a community to be prepared to understand what's being fed into these things, as well as our responsibilities as yeah. creators and users of these tools to understand those potential limitations, especially in the short term? Well, one of the things that I'm very pro is democratized AI. And democratized AI means that it, it, imagine imagine you could take Chat uh, GPT and you could take Dolly or Stable Diffusion and go back, um, you know, five years from now, five years back, and you, you'd become a millionaire instantly. But you wouldn't sell the the service. What you would do is you'd be able to sell human like services at a price that was uh, that was that made it look like you had people doing it. And that's very, like, it could be very unethical if someone has AI technology that basically people say that couldn't exist, that's magical, it's not real. If they have it, but they don't release it and we don't know it exists, then what they could do is they could just basically siphon off of everybody and then continue to uh, pretend, um, affect elections, do all kinds of stuff. They could actually manipulate large, large, large markets in the control of just a few people. And um, I guess one of the major things that I think is the key against that is don't hold back research. Make sure people are actually interested. Have ethical people in the room where the decisions are made and make sure that when these breakthroughs are happening, it's okay to share them. It's okay to have this information. I understand it has to be careful, but it has to be democratized in that process. Otherwise, you get a few companies that just can agree and and they can build a entire infrastructure without ever you know almost like shutting down the release of information to the rest of us and that's the danger that's where it can get very unethical very quick is when you've just got you've got a pyramid scheme inside of ai um what i really want to have is make sure people are involved people are in those rooms um people are being checked so when a large company creates a product make sure there's no bias no bias like you hold them to that standard but when you have a researcher releasing some kind of technology and they're they're, they're testing something out or anything like that they should be okay it should be okay to sort of like kind of release it out there if this is free if this is informational and then we all improve it together so i don't want people making money off of it until they've actually gone through all the moral compass but i also don't want companies to pretend that they're using the moral compass to keep all the secrets to themselves and say, oh, we can't give this to you. Uh, you'll do something bad with it. And we won't. Nah. What I like to do is <laughs> democratize AI, 
everybody gets involved, everybody joins the revolution, and then we all know what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it's funny how this is somewhat similar to the ideas of like performance and accessibility, this idea that if you have yes. an organization and a culture that's built around thinking of the people who aren't in the yes. room, um, yes. you know, that that is key. And I, I also agree with you that this is why we need to learn how these AIs work. They are not magic. There is right. logic to what they do. And you will start to learn how amazing it is that they work at all, but at the same time, so marvel at that, at what they're capable of doing. And I think the knowledge of the flaws, it's not, again, not about discrediting them. It's about um, gaining an appreciation of what you actually have and what you don't yeah. have. Uh, and so what you might need purpose. to go and confirm elsewhere, for example. 100%. Well, great. Well, that is a, as I said, a heady and philosophical place for us to end this. Of course, we could do another three hours on AI, which maybe we'll have to bring you back in and do yeah, another would, conversation about that. it. This this has uh, been a lot of fun. We've talked about all my favorite things. So thank you so much for having me, by the way. Yeah, and we've been it's been such a pleasure to have you as well. So for everybody else, that's it for us today. Thank you so much for listening to this Modern Web Podcast. Thank you, of course, to our guest, Gant. As always, the conversation does not stop here. You can find Gant on Twitter at Gant Laborde. That's G-A-N-T-L-A-B-O-R-D-E. I've always been asking people recently, are you doing the Mastodon thing yet or not uh, Not yet? No, I, I still haven't figured out what server to join. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the same analysis paralysis as you. <laughs> All right. As for me, you can find me online still only on Twitter so far at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. Thanks, everybody. Come See on. you next time. Come on, this podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. For all of your friends and you. Do-ba-do-do-do-do-yay-query-yay-query-shout-it-yay-queries-do. So come on, let's go, cause we got a show for you.